the truth of the interconnected nature of all things, you recognize, well, that is a kind of solidarity, a kind of relationship that is Sangha, and that we are all in a process of unfolding. And I think of karma in this way, you know, it's like, yeah, all of these causes and conditions show up right here in this moment. And then we come into relationship with it. You know, we bear witness to it, and then we co-create the next moment of it together. And new karma is created together. It doesn't happen alone. Joshin Burns, sensei, has walked a braided path on his spiritual journey, studying philosophy and theology, seeking inspiration in Vedic yoga and the interspiritual practices of the new monastic movement, and even, in his youth, taking vows as a Dominican brother. He is a student of Upaya's founder and guiding teacher, Roshi Joan Halifax, and is a lineage holder in the Mayazumi Roshi and Bernie Glassman Roshi family of Soto Zen and the Zen Peacemaker Order. He has been a Dharma teacher at Upaya Zen Center, as well as its president and vice abbot. Joshin continues to direct Upaya's chaplaincy training program and lead practice periods at Upaya, as well as social justice initiatives and the Upaya Street Ministry. Joshin recently started Bread Loaf Mountain Zen Community in Vermont. His understanding of the Dharma holds that personal and social liberation co-arise as a result of an integrated life. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit ProvidenceZen.org. So, Joshin, I'm wondering if you can take us back and help us understand how you got on this path, how you came to the Dharma. Well, I kind of got on the path by surprise in a way. I think I surprised myself with it. Um, as you mentioned, I was a Dominican when I was young and in theology school and studying for priesthood. I'd taken vows and was living in religious community, and I realized I didn't believe the theology that it, you know, was, it just wasn't resonating, wasn't really what I believed kind of in my core. And I also experienced the Catholic Church as a pretty oppressive institution. So I left as kind of an angry um, person uh, when I was about 26. And I rejected all organized religion for a long time. You know, I was young and arrogant and um, had very strong opinions, I guess. And uh, for a long time, I didn't really practice anything, um, but I was working in the AIDS epidemic for about 15 years, seeing a lot of difficulty and suffering there. I had adopted three children out of the foster care system, 
all who had trauma histories, and I'd stretched myself pretty thin. And um, when I hit about 40 years old, I uh, hit a wall and experienced a lot of the classic signs of burnout, a lot of apathy and frustration and anger, um, you know, kind of wondering what's it all about? Why am I doing this? Um, and I was becoming angrier and angrier at systems that, in my view, were perpetuating suffering. And I really didn't know what to do about it. And it also affected my sense of well-being. I, In my relationship with my partner, we started to have trouble and, you know, just started to drift apart. And I went to a therapist, um, a Jungian psychologist, and in the first visit after I told him kind of where I'd been and what I was doing, he said, you know, I just have a hunch here. I think you've become ungrounded. You've become untethered. You've lost what used to really nourish you when you had a contemplative life. Maybe maybe you should think about, you know, re-embracing a contemplative practice. Um, he said, you've, you've lost your inner life, he said to me. And when he said that, it kind of went through. It like went into me and I thought, there's something true about that. So I had so much baggage around um, Catholicism, I kind of couldn't go back in through that path, through that gate. And so I began to look eastward and first kind of explored yoga and some uh, Hindu practices. And I was sniffing around a lot. And through that was um, cultivating a contemplative, daily contemplative practice. And then eventually I landed in Zen. And in particular, what drew me was um, the Zen peacemaker style of Zen, which was about using the teachings and the practices to engage with a you know pretty complicated world where there's a lot of social suffering, and that resonated with me. So that's kind of how I got there. And I would say through coming into Zen and exploring contemplative social action. Um, in this way, I've also healed something in me that got, that felt broken around my relationship to Christianity and Catholicism. And even though I wouldn't say that I'm a Catholic or a Christian, I, I can say that I think what I studied and practiced back then, I now recognize really enriches my life. So that's kind of a nutshell. And so for the people who perhaps aren't familiar with it, the the Zen Peacemakers, that's uh, Bernie Glassman's work? Yeah, it's Bernie Glassman's work. And for people who don't know, he had done traditional Zen training under Maizumi Roshi out of the Zen Center of Los Angeles, but then went to New York and decided to work with, um, you know, kind of in the margins of society with people who were deeply economically disenfranchised, people coming out of recovery in prison. Uh, people dealing with HIV disease and addiction issues. And he created the Grayston Bakery out of that, which is a social enterprise that used a lot of Zen principles to um, help people start to create a life that had meaning and purpose and direction for themselves. And it was always a very powerful model for me of, of kind of the relevance of Zen in the modern world. 
And were you still living in San Francisco when that this happened, when you came across the Zen Peacemakers? Yeah, the first time I was, I was working at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, and uh, I had heard and read a bit about Bernie's work and the Zen Peacemakers. But um, after that conversation with the therapist, I then decided to take advantage of an opportunity that had come my way to become the president of a community philanthropy organization called the Vermont Community Foundation up here in Vermont. And um, Vermont seemed like a good idea because the winters are long and dark. And I thought that's a perfect way to <laughs> go inward. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so many people that trying to escape these New England winters. <laughs> right. I, I decided to dive in. Um, because um, there wasn't a whole bunch to do and not a lot of distraction. And I loved uh -huh. my work there. I got to know all these community, all these people doing fantastic work, both on the nonprofit side and on the philanthropic side. And in the midst of that, because I was running a statewide philanthropy, I got to know the people who were running the Ben and Jerry's Foundation. And those mm -hmm. people were deeply connected with Bernie Glassman's work and the Grayston Bakery because the Great Bakery started to create all of the brownies for Ben and Jerry's chocolate fudge brownie ice cream. And oh. so I wound up meeting with Chuck Leaf, who was, I think, then the president of the board of the Grayston uh, Bakery and learned more about Bernie Glassman's work. And it was at that point that I decided to uh, really begin to cultivate as a more serious Zen practice. And after about five years of that kind of still as a householder, my kids still at home and all that. Um, after five years, they all, you know, were starting to leave the, the nest. And I decided to go practice at Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe with Joan Halifax Roshi, who was a student of Bernie Glassman's and one of the founders of the Zen Peacemaker Order. So when you moved to, to San, Santa Fe, it was... Because you wanted to study with Joan Halifax then? Well, I had taken another job there with the Santa Fe Community Foundation. But the reason I took that job was because I knew that Upaya Zen Center was there. And I wanted an opportunity to explore deep, regular practice. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a more monastic setting. Roshi Joan is a phenomenal teacher. And so I went to Santa Fe with kind of a dual purpose. One was to lead that organization, but also to practice uh, deeply at Upaya Zen Center. And how long did you stay at Upaya? I started practicing there um, about nine years ago. And so I stayed there for nine years. And over those years, I my relationship with Roshi Joan deepened. And eventually, I became the president of Upaya and the vice abbot there. And about a year and a half ago, Roshi offered me Dharma transmission, so I became a, a you know, a, a teacher. And um, so my relationship there has been steady and gradual, and kind of a, a real growth process for me. And I'm so grateful that Roshi just invited me in deeper and deeper. Right. Yeah, she's been one of those people who I've, you know, has sat kind of on the horizon of my uh, sort of little world 
uh, kind of like a little bit like a constellation of um, someone who holds forth a, a teaching about the Dharma that I really respect and admire. Yeah, yeah it's a very powerful teaching. Um, and she invited me into the Upaya Chaplaincy training program, which is, I think, among you know some of the best work Upaya does. And um, and there was able to really hear her teach deeply about you know how to serve the world without getting caught up and lost and trapped in you know your own stuff. And um, she really challenges her students to. Um, do their work, you know, their inner work, and she challenges the chaplains in that way too. So, I really benefited from that. She's a she's a challenging teacher, you know. She's direct and clear and strong. Um, I've I've really valued that. I was watching this talk that you gave at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, you were part of a panel there talking about uh, Buddhist chaplaincy, and there was this particular moment that really uh, stood out to me. And this was because I'd, you know, a mentor of mine, and I remember this probably happened maybe 10 years ago, where he looked at me and he's like, who is training the chaplains for the world? And, you know, both of us were professional ministers. We're both Unitarian Universalist ministers. And so we'd we'd followed this professional path. But he wasn't talking about a professional path. He was talking about the people that are able to really witness to the lives of other people. And when you were talking about the the upaya chaplaincy you you mentioned that there was this professional path but then there was this other this non-professional path that was for lawyers and nurses and you know whomever wanted to come into it to really see and understand their role as chaplains in the world yeah and to you know to live with their hearts and values sort of out there and i was so struck by that um just because i feel like we're always trying to professionalize yeah. <laughs> uh, which is great there's a great need for professional standards but you know in this sort of crisis of culture who are the chaplains you, you can't have enough you know all these professional chaplains you need yeah. people willing to take that as a just as an identity though yeah well, you know, in some ways, I would say this is what it means to be a practitioner in the world, right? Is that we show up recognizing that we are participating in systems where suffering exists. Mm. And we come to it, I think, you know, with the mind of a chaplain, which is a kind of coming beside a bearing witness mind, a dropping into a situation with a kind of intimacy but also with the ability or the strength to, or the courage maybe to not get lost in the suffering, in the pain, but to meet it and to presence it. And in presencing it, we, we, some kind of healing happens, some kind of, transformation of the suffering can happen. And I think, you know, this is our work and this is what it means to recognize that there is suffering as the Buddha taught, you know, and that we're, you know, our, our lives can be 
uh, enriched and the lives of others can be enriched by presencing that suffering and understanding it deeply and engaging with each other in the process of transforming it into wisdom and insight and to deeper love and real compassion. And I think that's the work of a chaplain. And it happens, it can happen anywhere in any setting. One thing I really noticed in your writing uh, and in some of the talks I've, I've seen you give is you have this real focus on sort of shared responsibility on uh, a wisdom of a group. Um, I think I've even heard you use the, the term co-creation that happens as a dynamic between the, the teacher and the student. And for me, I, I found it very refreshing. I think often in the practice life, we, you know, we see it as kind of a solitary journey. <laughs> I mean, and we can get so in our heads, but you know, it's, I'm sitting on the cushion. I'm, right. you know, doing the vows and even the way we talk about it, like this person gets enlightenment or yeah. whatnot. And, and there was a real communal value in the way that you talked about uh, Zen or, or Buddhism. And, and I'm wondering if you can say a little more about how that came to you. Was that an, an insight in Zen? Did that, was that coming from your earlier work? Did that come from the Dominicans? <laughs> like, it's interesting you raise it. And yeah, yeah, that's a wonderful question. And I'm not sure I was as aware of it as, um, as uh, you're saying. But now that you say it, yeah, I do think there is kind of a basic understanding that I work out of. If read uh, the transmission of the lamp, you see that Kazan in his story about the Buddha says at the moment of the Buddha's enlightenment, the Buddha said, I and all beings awaken together. That it's not just about the Buddha's enlightenment, it's that simultaneously we awaken, you know, simultaneously we begin to appreciate our lives. And that's because we are social and we are interconnected. And, you know, if you, uh, really look deeply at the, the truth of the interconnected nature of all things. You recognize, well, that is a kind of solidarity, a kind of relationship that is Sangha and that we are all in a process of unfolding. And I think of karma in this way, you know, it's like, yeah, all of these causes and conditions show up right here in this moment. And then we come into relationship with it. You know, we bear witness to it, and then we co-create the next moment of it together. And new karma is created together. It doesn't happen alone. And yeah, I think that is a fundamental belief of mine, um, or an operating principle, maybe. Um, it's a strong opinion that I have that uh, I can't know anything about the teachings if it weren't for my uh, kind of social nature, you know, it's in context of a world that I get to understand my own mind, that I get to understand the consequences of, of actions, my own and, and others. And we reverberate together, we're creating something together. 
And yeah, you mentioned the student-teacher relationship. That that is how I think about it. You know, uh, it's said in Zen, there are no teachers of Zen. Um, and in some ways, I think the real teaching happens in the context of the relationship between a so-called teacher and a so-called student. Is I I find myself you know feeling a lot of gratitude for what the student brings to the relationship because gosh I'm you know it's a teaching what the student brings and so we we awaken together you know mm-hmm. inch by inch moment by moment um through our you know shared moments of insight and through our kind of foibles and mistakes and missteps. Um, and that seems kind of like the beauty of it to me. You know, uh, it's in the, the raw humanity of our experience of our lives that we kind of find each other and we, we learn and we grow and we teach and, and we create together. Yeah, that it was that line that we co-create the the next moment together that it hit me so hard because I, I absolutely believe that, and yet it's like, oh right, you know, we say all these things like the the great interdependence and the the the, the arising, you know, all of this, but it, actually, when you put a face on that <laughs> on the interdependence, it's, it's um yeah there's a responsibility that's like oh yeah this next moment that's coming not only am i responsible f- for it i'm also you know i'm co-creating yeah. that moment and, with you and by, just is, let me say one last thing about that part which is co-creating i think means that we're setting something in motion you know and that's really interesting I think that's an interesting way for me, at least to think about what I'm doing moment to moment in my life, in my interactions is setting new things in motion and they're going to have a life, you know, and they're going to evolve, they're going to be dynamic and they're going to emerge into other things. And so there's also, in addition to the kind of the beauty of this, like, yeah, we're co-creating something together. But it's not just like, you know, um, a little art project of, you know, making a collage together or something. We're actually taking responsibility for the future together. And what we do together matters because it's setting something in motion. And that's kind of the really important part, I think. You know, some of the pieces that you've written... There's an article from a year ago, an article from a couple of years ago, and they're oh god, <laughs> they're a little bit depressing because they they feel so current. In that, you know, there's this one article you have called the uh, Zaza and the Path of Social Transformation, and you know, as I was reading it, uh, you're talking about you know all of the drama we experience in this online life and. Um, some of the just real suffering that happens 
uh, there. And, you know, for me, this sort of very personal, like this week I had an interaction online that I'm just like, Oh, how did that happen? Oh my God, this is just not, you know, what I wanted it to be, but here it is. This is our life. Right. And you had this great line where you said, Zazen is a sorely needed ethical enterprise. And in part, that's because you're talking about just taking time to sit and be quiet so that we can find ourselves in a counter, you know, this is my language, so you can sort of push away from it if you want, but a, a countercultural space that gives us the opportunity um, yeah. to sort of step away from some of the unwholesomeness and the busyness so that we can reconnect to, you know, what you say here is our innate wholeness. You know, here we are in just kind of this drama that is America. Really, the world, the whole world is in drama right now. But, you know, for us, we're both Americans. And it's like, how do you see the practice of Zazen helping people or the, the practice of meditation, however people find it? You know, right, there are a lot of different aspects, I think, to Zazen. But one of them that strikes me about our lives today is Zazen is also, it's about stopping, you know, it's about, yeah, just stopping. I think Dogen says at one point, like in Zazen, you're not creating karma, good or bad, you know, you're just stopping. And you're stopping and you're sitting with, presencing, bearing witness to life in this particular moment and we you know try to kind of open our our view our perspective pretty wide um during that time and and it seems to me one of the things that's really needed in the world today is an ability to stop that we we get so caught up in the the constant, um, you know, you name it, purchasing, consuming, arguing, uh, competing, you know, we're, we're just caught up in it. And there's no stepping away. There's so little time or opportunity. There's no kind of built-in pause button anymore. And I know I feel that way in my life. You know, you check your email in the morning and check your email again late at night. And all you've done all day is kind of check your email and check Facebook and, you know, get things done and read the headlines and get upset and react. And it seems to me, you know, the third, the third noble opinion of the Buddha is that stopping is important. Um, you know, the cessation of suffering, stopping. Stephen Batchelor calls it the task, the third task, is just to stop. And Zazen, I think, is about stopping, that it's a proactive, maybe even prophetic way of stepping away from the unwholesomeness of busyness. And it gives us an opportunity to, I don't know, feel into what it means, what it is to be naturally 
resourceful and resilient and creative and whole and connected naturally, you know. And we stop all the mind activity um, and the busyness, but kind of what's there, what's left. And uh, so I think I think that's a place for Zazen in our current world. You know, it's not to achieve some kind of blinding moment of enlightenment, but to rest into a deep, unifying silence that's there. I don't know. What, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> so there's this line. It's not my line, but it's one I use often. It was a. It was actually from a guy who was recording sounds in nature, and he said, um, "Silence is an endangered species," and. I feel like even though Facebook is new and Twitter's new and computers are new, uh, you know, obviously even in the Buddhist time, people had a hard time, uh, you know, suffering existed, suffering created by the mind existed. But right now we have such abilities to, to murder and, um, and just the crew, I feel like the cruelty that's possible today is immense. And because we are not pausing, we're not stopping, this cruelty just seems to run of its own accord. And it's hard to watch. It's heartbreaking to watch. Mm-hmm. In my pessimistic days, I'm like, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if any of this meditation works or not. But I I guess that's why I'm a person of faith. You know, I have faith that it does. Yeah. I have I don't know what else to have other than faith that if we pause, we can see how tender yeah. the relationship is. Yeah, and I and I think there, you know, my opinion like in my mind, you know, what I notice is there are a number of things that, that happen. One is just stopping gives me a chance to let go of some of these habits that contribute to pain and discomfort and suffering and all those things. It's just like, yeah, just like um, let, letting go is, is something we're not really used to, I think. We're always grabbing on uh, to some mm-hmm. position or ideology or some sense of who's right and who's wrong and and in that grasping we're just always dividing up the world into the good guys and the bad guys and for me at least that's a big habit for me you know mm-hmm. sometimes i can get really self-righteous and really dug into my you know political perspective and there's my team that i feel a kind of um common enemy intimacy with i think Brene brown calls it you know like i feel intimate with my team because we all have the same enemies in the world you know like we all hate the same people yeah i think okay wait a minute stop just stop you know look at that yeah (laughs) is that really healing the world you know or is it just another and this time it looks a little virtuous you know but another iteration another 
manifestation of the same old habit of dividing up the world. And the then, I think, is at least a moment where we have at least creates the conditions where you might be able to let go of some of that. And I think letting go of some of that, it like resets the starting point for future action. You know, because the danger, right, is that we all sit on the cushion, we let go, and then we feel this little bliss state like, oh, there's nothing to worry about here. You know, everything's sweet and nice. And gosh, you know, the <laughs> Is that what happens pretty, on your cushion? That, well, no, no. My knees <laughs> kill me, my, you know, all that yeah. stuff. Um, and, you know, the mind might take off and all that stuff. But also, you know, we go into these beautiful zendos, right? Yeah. Where, you know, there's some kind of nothing but like, wow, you know, it's beautiful. Um, and, you know, it, I think one of the, the, the dangers, right, of, of Zazen gone wrong in some ways is, is that we go into a little bubble and we think all is okay in the world because here on my cushion, nothing can bother me, you know, and I, I, I kind of don't think that's what it's about. But I do think that in this process of letting go and um, feeling into the kind of solidarity that silence is, you know, um, what's present in silence, everything's present in silence and feeling into that. Then kind of I start to act in the world in a little different way, like rather than objectifying other people so that I can fix them or change them or help them. You know, these these kind of very Western ways of thinking about how we relate to one another or even what virtuous action is in our society. It's usually fixing, helping, solving, you know, conquering, those kinds of things. I think action can begin to emerge out of a different place, which is a kind of, you know, this is then jargon, but a kind of intimacy, a kind of sense of very deep belonging to this world. And as a member of this world, a member of this one body is a person who belongs here and who belongs to everyone and every being, you know, as Dogen says, um, the 13th century Zen master, you know, we uh, consider whether you belong to every moment and it belongs to you. That sense of belonging is a different place of action than the sense of trying to change something in the world. And and I think there's, for me, my opinion is that's um, that's what Zen has to offer. That's what contemplative, I wouldn't even just call it Zen. I think that's what non-dual uh, contemplative practices have to offer. That's what the, you know, sitting in the oneness of life has to offer the world, um, which is that you're not separate from anything. And... You know, your liver wouldn't compete against your heart. No, they, they learn to work together as part of one body. And so action takes on a little different feel than trying to change things into the way you think they should be in the world, you know? Yeah. You know, what you were just saying, it reminds me of a um, Catholic priest named Thomas Berry who has got this great line where he says, where we move from the, the, um, a collection of objects, seeing the world as a, 
collection of objects coming into seeing the world as a a communion of subjects and understanding this sort of subject of the subject code, everything allowing everything to have its place, uh, your behavior just changes yeah. how you relate to it to everything because you're it's not you haven't objectified at all. Yeah, and you know that all sounds like you know an, a nice idea, and we, I mean, I at least, as I said in Zen, kind of one continuous failure, you know. I have feet of clay. I slip off that all the time. I slip away from it. I find myself, you know, reacting to the headlines and feeling the outrage um, when things go terribly wrong, like they did this weekend in Pittsburgh, for example. You know, it's hard not to feel those things. Yeah. And in fact, we should feel them. I think there is a place for outrage at the violence of the world, you know. But then we can't stop there. You know, we can't just... You know, I, I, I do think we, we don't want to look at the world and say, oh, well, you know, this is just the great unfolding of karma as it is. No, I think there's really deeply engaging in the relative world um, that opens us up to the kind of oneness, the absolute, you know, a practitioner, it's, you know, I think being a practitioner doesn't mean we never feel anger or outrage at the world. I think, in fact, maybe we practice may take us deeper into those reactions, see them deeply, kind of the deep fabric of them. But I think the other thing that practice offers is and stillness and silence and zazen even offers is the ability to transform that anger, to not let it harbor, to not let it really take, you know, kind of set its roots deeper in, but to really be the the pivot point for greater insight, for a little taste of wisdom, for a little bit of opening the heart a little bit more, you know, loving a little bit more um, and that's that's where the the space of zazen that's that's the, those are the conditions that the space of zazen gives us you know to be able to do that work thank you for listening to this episode of sit breathe bow I hope you found the conversation with Joshin Burns. I hope you found the conversation with Joshin Burns encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about his teaching and retreat schedule by visiting breadloafmountainzen.org. That's breadloafmountainzen.org. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Providence Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all of that information at providencezen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos you can watch at providencezen.org videos. My name is Ian Whitemar. I hope you'll join me again next week.